Greetings to all of God's people. This is Mordecai Joseph. We're now in Lesson 73. And last time we're discussing the difference between rabbinic law and what God gave. As uh, Jesus Christ mentioned in Mark chapter 7. And in verse 7 he said, And in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines or his doctrines, the commandments of men. And we're discussing the fact that when God gave Moses the law, first he wrote it with his own hands, that is the Ten Commandments, and the rest of the law uh, he gave Moses to write, and he wrote it there while in the Mount, the first four chapters of uh, Exodus uh, 20 to 24, right after the giving of the Ten Commandments. And after that he gave him many instructions, uh, oftentimes orally, they were not written, and uh, the things that uh, Moses wrote, we have it recorded, other things were not written, and as I mentioned earlier uh, in last tape, that uh, Paul was mentioning the fact that many of those instructions were given by disposition of angels, and then the 70 elders also that were added to uh, the leadership of Israel, and God gave them the Holy Spirit, and they too uh, had understanding. And those things accumulated, and then uh, as time went by, God told, uh, as a matter of fact, from the beginning, he told Moses that when there is a need to, uh, he's going to speak to the high priest, and if the high priest uh, has something that he needs to ask God about it, or the judges later on, or the prophets, or whatever, you know, all of us who are going to rule Israel, uh, they can make contact with God through the Urim and Tumim, which we see the prophets do, like David did many times, and God responded. And those things were recorded. So that's a real oral law that was given to Israel. But to say, as the rabbi did 1,500 years later, when they began writing their own things, and they had no inspiration by God, and they cannot claim the Holy Spirit spoke through them or in them, whatever, and they wrote their own understanding of what they thought the law should be, and oftentimes they changed many things. And so by the time Christ came on the scene, they've done so much of that that he had to tell them, a lot of the things that they've uh, added, heavy burdens and all that, God never meant for it to be. They're contrary to the spirit of the law that Moses told them. You, you know, this is the law. It's only in accordance with this law that you govern Israel and you do not add to it. That means add to it something that came from your own mind, not add to it something which God has inspired to be written, which he can do any time, and do not diminish from it. And they've done just that. And so this is what he's talking about. In other words, the difference between the oral law that God gave and the, and the oral law that the rabbis gave is what the problem is uh, in this case. And through that, God says, you are worshipping me in vain. With all the wisdom, there is a lot of wisdom. You cannot say there is no wisdom there. After all, they had the oracles, as uh, Paul himself said, you know, the advantage of the Jew had. They had the oracles of God. They could study it. They could come to a greater understanding. They were not totally blind and ignorant and and deceived, they were not fools, they were not stupid, they were very wise men. But unfortunately, when they did not rely on the Holy Spirit, and that can occur with anybody, it can happen to every single one of us, and all of us are guilty of it, we should not just put the blame on those rabbis, we too, to this very day, are doing the same thing, to one degree or the other, things that God did not inspire at all. Uh, some of those things may be uh, fine, because they may be in accordance with the law, and they are not uh, contrary to the law, other, other things... We have invented of our own things. And God didn't tell us to do those things. And that's, that's the nature of man, unfortunately, to add and to diminish from the law. And what it is contrary to the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God did not lead us to that, we should not add that. So we too have our own oral law. And sometimes we forget that. And so this is what uh, God is dealing with here in person as He came in the flesh. 
He told him the things that you've added on your own, which are not con- which are not in accordance with the law, they are in vain when you worship me through that, and when you we worship God through that, and that goes for us too. And that's why Christ said, "He that hears an ear, let him hear." And whatever he said in the old days, it's applicable to all of us too, to this very day. And that's where the problem was with the with the scribes and the, and the Pharisees and the rabbis and all that. They did not wait on God to lead them by the Spirit to truth. They used human reason. And God told Jeremiah to record a statement that is applicable to all of us. And he said, Cursed be the man, not blessed, cursed be the man that puts his trust in man. And if the words that man gives us came from God, we're going to be blessed. But if they are not and they are contrary to the law of God, we're going to be cursed. And that will be a blessing to us. And all those heavy burdens that the rabbis heaped upon uh, the community, which were not inspired by God, were, were a curse to, to the nation. Not a blessing. And a curse to this very day. Makes life miserable. Not happy. And God said, when he came in the flesh, you take my yoke, for my yoke is easy. The law of God was not meant to make life miserable and difficult for us. And yet the laws of men oftentimes are. They're mindless. And out of the mind of God, oftentimes they, are not, they don't seem to be even of the mind of men. They seem to be crazy. The instructions don't make sense. Anyway, uh, that's what we're dealing with here. And so now let's continue with uh, chapter 12 and uh, verse 18, where we continue to read some more instructions that are relevant to this subject. And verse 18 we read, about the Sadducees uh, that came and told the story to uh, Jesus Christ, which is you know, just a story, it's not a real thing. And the reason is uh, they did not believe in the resurrection. So they just wanted to test him on that. You know, what are you going to say about that? And they gave him the example of the, of the woman that married uh, 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 one person, and he died, and then she married his brother, and he died, and she married another brother. Anyway, he ma- she married seven of them. And they're all dead. And... So they ask him, Jesus Christ, in the, res- in the resurrection. They didn't believe in it, but they ask him. Anyway, in the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? And he let them know that they were not too much familiar with the law as they should have been. Not that they knew nothing about the law. Some people want to go from one extreme to the other. But when Christ told them, you do not know the scriptures, that means they knew nothing about the scriptures. Well, that's foolishness. This is not what he's talking about. He says, you do not understand this matter of the resurrection. And whatever other matter they did not understand. He did not say, you know, nothing but the scriptures. They were very well familiar and well versed in the scriptures from their youth. So let's not go from one, you know, one extreme to the other because that's not wise. And so Jesus answered and said to them, are you not therefore mistaken? Because you do not know the scriptures, know the power of God, speaking about this subject, that's the topic, of resurrection, not anything else. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. In other words, angels in heaven don't marry. Some people later on came up with this uh, uh, so-called uh, illumination, you know, enlightenment. That angels do marry, and they came down to earth, and they married women, and they had children. And God made it very plain. Angels don't marry. They do not have reproductive uh, organs. God didn't create them to, to be life givers, 
As he gave it to men to be able to reproduce himself, he didn't give it to angels. Now, they cannot become men and, and do it. Angels to begin with cannot become men. They, they, can, they can appear in the form of men, but they cannot become human beings. And especially not demons. It's only when God commands them and, and gives them the opportunity. That's the reason why demons want to possess human beings or want to possess animals, because they cannot become animals, nor can they be human beings. Very plain. Anyway, he said angels are in that category, and so are the people, the children of God. He's speaking specific here about his own people, the people of Israel, the church. And uh, obviously all of the others that God is going to call through them. And, in, and finally, the entirety of the earth. And so he said... They're like the angels in heaven. Verse 26, But concerning the dead, that they arise, have you not read in the book of Moses? You see, this is where he's leading them to. And of course he knew that they did read it. He just brought it to their attention. You should have known it. And the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him, saying, I am, not I was, I am. That's speaking about the essence of the of the concept of time is God as far as he's concerned. It's an eternal thing for him. For us, it's a limited thing. So we have past, present, future. To God, there is no such a thing. He transcends past, present, and future. He's eternal. And so he who calls things which are not as though they are, because it's just a matter of, of uh, bringing it to pass anytime he wants, therefore he can speak always in the present term, uh, tense. And so he says, I am the God of Abraham. That means, as far as he's concerned, Abraham is still alive. And the God of Isaac. And the God of Jacob. And who is Jacob? Abraham we know, one person. Isaac we know, one person. But Jacob was Jacob. Jacob became not only uh, the patriarch, you know, who is Jacob, but also the whole nation is also Jacob. And so God is the God of Jacob in every given generation. And any one of us who descended from Jacob is Jacob. God is our God. As far as God is concerned, all of us are alive to Him. All of us written in the book of life. If you are written in the book of life, you are alive. And uh, He is not the God of the dead. In other words, if they, if they are just dead and that's it, gone, and uh, no future, no resurrection, He's not their God. He is the God only of living beings. And these fathers and every human being written in the book of life to God, they are living beings. And that's why, you know, he can, uh, he can say that. Because God who calls things which are not as though they are can speak that way. We can't, but he can. And if you follow his language, we can too, if you use his language and not ours. And so he says, he's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. That means they are living, they're not dead, as far as he's concerned, and you are therefore greatly mistaken. Because you do not understand what resurrection is all about. And so, this is what God said about all of his people. And look at the implications. If Abraham is alive and Isaac is alive as far as God is concerned, because it's just a matter of activating, you know, the being, giving him spirit body, and the spirit is there anyway, spirit doesn't die, only the body dies. And then Jacob is alive and all the nation of Israel is alive as far as God is concerned. That's why he constantly talks to them. Therefore, his church is still alive, and therefore you understand again what it means when he said to Peter that the gate of the grave will never prevail against his church, because his church is alive as far as he's concerned. Now, our body may die, 
That's why later on you read in Revelation about the souls of all the saints that are up there in heaven, you know, crying to God, how long? That's what it's talking about. Because as far as God is concerned, all these things are as though they are. And that's how you begin to understand the scripture more and more and comprehend every statement that you read. You put all these things together. And so he told them, you're totally mistaken. Abraham is alive, Isaac is alive, Israel is alive, all of Israel is alive, the church is alive. God never rejected the church. They're always his. His people are always his. Israel is his, his wife. Even though all of them are not in the grave, they're asleep, so to speak. That's why the terminology is asleep. You don't think about your, uh, your child or your parent or your father or your mother or your wife, whatever it may be when they're asleep, but they're dead. No, they're just asleep. And that's how God regards us. They're just asleep. But they're alive as far as he's concerned. And the church is alive. And even when Christ died, as far as, far as God is concerned, he was alive. It's just a matter of the body that uh, was not conscience. Uh, because it was dead. It wasn't functioning. But the spirit continues, goes on. It's not a spirit, it's not a person, as some people thought because of uh, misunderstanding. Anyway, uh, this is what he's telling us. And then, somebody else comes to him, verse 28, and uh, scribe and asks him, what is the greatest commandment? Verse 29. And verse 29, we read uh, the answer of Christ. Well, Jesus answered him, the first of of uh, all the commandments is. Every, every time, you know, you ask somebody, you know, what are the two great commandments? Well, the third, that, love toward God, love toward men. Well, that's not what Christ said. You see, Moses warned us, and some of us are not learning. You do not add, you do not diminish to the words of God. And this is what God said, is the first commandment. So when they ask him, this is what Jesus answered. The first of all commandments is, hear, O Israel. And here the word in Hebrew, in here, means also obey. It has double meaning. So obey, O Israel. That's what God says, you know, he that has an ear, let him hear. That's what he's talking about. Let him obey. Hear, O Israel, that is, obey, O Israel. That's the first commandment. The eternal, our God, the Lord is one. That's the first commandment, and that's the first stage of the first commandment. Then comes the continuation, the second part of this commandment. And you shall love the eternal, your God, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. This is the first commandment. In other words, the first part, if it's not there, if you do not obey God, if you do not hear God, of what value is it for you to love God? You see, without obedience to his Torah, your love toward him is meaningless to him. That's what he's saying here. And some people don't understand even the first commandment. And they're talking about, you know, the two first are the most important, forget about all the rest. And they don't realize, to their own, you know, because of their foolishness and blindness, that the first commandment demands obedience to the Torah. Because that's how Jesus Christ put it. The first of all commandments is here. That is, obey, O Israel. And speaking about his own church, his own people. Some people claim to be his own people, the people of God, the Israel of God. And they say, well, we're the Israel of God, but we don't like the law. You know, don't talk to us about it. We don't want to hear that word Torah. Forget all about it. We're under grace. Well, these are the blind, these are the children of Babylon, and God told us, if you don't want to, do not want to partake of the plagues of Babylon, you better come out, come out of it totally. 
And we're not speaking about physically, because we can physically, we're living in Babylon. But spiritually, theologically, you know, all those teachings that they give us, you should come out of it. It's not of me. And then, he told him about the second one initially, uh, and the second is like it, just like the same. And the second one also has two parts. This, and the, and the second part is this, you shall love, what is love? What is love? The partisan concept, the Catholic concept, or the biblical concept? Love is the fulfilling of the Torah. So the second commandment, the second greatest commandment, too, also has two parts. And by introducing the word love, he's already telling you that you better obey the Torah because that's the only way you're going to know what is love and what is hatred. You see? And so people say, well, I love, I love, I love, and they do all kinds of things that hurt. That's why uh, Solomon, the wisest of all men, said that he that spares the rod hates his son. You see? Because of the consequences of of uh, sparing the rod. Because children need it. The children need discipline. But now and then. They don't need it every every you know, every three seconds, but they need it now and then. And so the two go together. So the first commandment, the great commandment, and the second great commandment are the same, Christ is saying. They're both made of two parts. That you cannot love God nor love your neighbor unless you first hear and obey the Torah of God. And this is what he gave Israel, and yet the counterfeit church, the Gentile church, and those among us today who have contempt and hatred because they've been, uh, from uh, the breast of the mother, so to speak, been fed with that lie, and that poison, and that contempt for the law of God, for the Torah of God, they say, I don't want to have anything to do with it, you know, I just want grace and love, and, and all that stuff, and nice, nice things. And God makes it very plain. The greatest commandments involve, first, obedience to the law of God. And without obedience to the law of God, God doesn't want our love. Because it's meaningless. Our love becomes hatred to him, an abomination to him, an vomit to him. A lot of people are there full of love. And yet full of hatred and contempt for the, for the law of God. Which is his mind, his nature, his character, his personality, his, his value system. Uh, I mean, you can say it in so many ways. And if you say it rightly, you can't even say, you know, these are his uh, Christian principles, speaking about Christ, his Son of God, or godly principles, or ethics, or values, or whatever it may be. And so, the second is like this, like it. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And there is no other commandment greater than this, because this too encompass the totality of God, his law, which is reflected by his love, and his love, which is reflected by his law. The two are together, and they are one. You cannot separate one from the other. And you cannot say, I hate God, but I love my neighbor, or I love my neighbor, and I hate God. Or I love God, and I love my neighbor, but I hate the law. There is no such a thing. This is the oneness of God. Totally. Mind, body, spirit, heart, nature, character, personality. There is no separation there. And this is what he gave Israel... And it is for this reason that he's going to die for Israel because they transgressed that law. So they can now, having the Holy Spirit, have the law written in their heart. Now only few of them, sprinklings, few here, few there, and few others of the nations that God is grafting. But the main body, the church itself, is coming at the end. When God sets his hand to deliver all of his people, 
both who are alive at his coming and all those who are dead at the second resurrection and make them his wife. And even that is a gradual thing. Yes, the ceremony is only one time, like in Sinai. The ceremony, the wedding ceremony, so to speak, is a one-time affair. It doesn't happen every day. But the process of the marriage happens every day, in every moment, every time a child is born to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their descendants. They are grafted into the marriage. And so that's a concept that goes on in reality until human beings are born no more. And so this is what we see here. And and so the, the scribe answered, replied to this, well, verse 32, said, teacher, well you said, in other words, well said, you said it well, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is no other but he. And Christ did not contradict him, because there is only one God. What does it mean, one God? You see, this is what confuses people. We're speaking in English here, and that's what the problem is. There is one over all. That's what he means. There is one deity over all. That's what it means. That doesn't mean that there is no other deity with him. And it does not mean that there aren't going to be other deities born into that family. And when people don't understand that, then they begin to play games with semantics and words, and they don't understand what they're talking about, and they have all these controversies over nothing. Because they are blind. And when you bring an argument before the blind, well, is it red or is it green? Is it blue? Is it yellow? Is it purple? That's a foolish exercise to go through. What do you give it to the blind? They cannot tell, right, you know, red from uh, yellow from green. And yet when people begin to discuss and argue about this and write and sometimes go to war and kill as they've done in time past and probably will do in the future, you're talking to blind people. You don't give this kind of information to blind people. Wait until they can see, then you can discuss those with them and illuminate them and make them understand. And yet, that's the way God made it. He blinded most of his people. And most of, this, of his people that have arguments about it and write articles about it and uh, fight about it and all that, that's because they're blind. When you see, you don't go and argue with the blind. It's foolish to go to, uh, to a blind person and argue with him about red and yellow and green. You know, that shows you there is something wrong with your mind. Don't do that. You see? That's why Christ put it in a very bold manner that seems to be very offensive to some who do not understand what he's talking about. He says, look, in essence, I created the pig. I created the swine. And the swine is a swine. All he can understand is, you know, well, only the mire. And so, you don't take pearls and give it to the swine and expect that swine to have a comprehension or appreciation for it. So he said to his disciples, don't give your pearls to the swine. In other words, he used a parable to explain. People who are blind, who cannot understand, should not be subjected to the truth. And so to go and have an argument with a blind person about the truth shows that you're a foolish person. You see? Just like you'll be a foolish person if you go and have an argument with a swine about the value of the pearl. And it's not putting down anybody. It's just an explanation. That's all it is. As Paul later on would explain in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where he said that there are certain things that only a man that has the Holy Spirit can understand, just like a man cannot go to, a, to an animal, a cow, and uh, discuss matters that only a human being can understand. And so it is among men also. Only those who are spiritual can discuss matters of, spirit, of the Spirit with spiritual people. And it's foolishness to go and discuss it with people who do not have the spirit or who do not have the faith who do not believe 
because there is absolutely no way to get through. And it would be just as wise to go to a person like that as it would be to go to a cow. The results will be the same, and that's not a mark of wisdom on our part when we do that. And so many people, just to prove that they know better, that they know the truth, they want to cram it down the throat of others when they are neither prepared for it, not able to understand it, not able to comprehend it. And therefore, we should not do that, uh, those kind of things, because that's also a part of walking in love. You see, when you walk in love, you do not offend others when you fully realize that they are not capable of understanding it. It's not putting anybody down. It's just a matter of the way things are. Spiritual things can be on, only discerned by those who have the spirit. And so, with the spirit of love and charity, whatever it may be, that's the way we have to treat everybody else. And it's not love to go to somebody who is not capable of understanding it, either because he lost his faith, and just not there, and no matter what you say, nothing is going to change, or because he had, never had the faith to begin with, or never was able to see things to begin with. And so, God wants us to bring knowledge, light, knowledge, and understanding to those that God is calling. And he hasn't done, and that's something that people do not understand about doing the work of God. They think, well, you go to the whole world, and you just sow the, the seed everywhere. Well, what's the value of sowing the seed everywhere when you realize that the areas that you are in are thorny places, are rocky places? Nobody can understand what you're saying. Nobody can understand what you're calling, whether that you are talking about, and God is not interested in calling anybody in that area. And that's the reason why God told his disciples, that is Jesus Christ. He said, look, you know, when you come to an area where they're not willing to listen to you, you know, shake the dust off your feet and just go away. Don't stick around and begin to argue with them and debate with them. Go someplace else, you know, where I'm uh, going to deal with people who are more of a noble mind, humble mind. And that's what the disciples have done. And so we should be able to do the same. Follow the footsteps of Jesus Christ. When he had to deal with people that were not willing to understand or comprehend, he just let them alone. And that's what we're dealing with here. God is speaking to a man, at least, who is understanding, you know, has an understanding of the law, so he can discuss matters with him. But when he saw people who had no understanding, he just let them go. Since he blinded them, obviously, they're not going to be able to see. And so he can do a measure of work, but when he realizes there is a wall there, he cannot get through, he just let it go. And yet people are, would rather debate and argue and spend so much time on it, and it's all to no avail. And so it is hopefully also with this series that the people, who at least are honest with the scriptures, they may not have the spirit, but at least they may be honest with the scriptures and subjective, and objective, not subjective, uh, that they would listen and, like the Bereans, check those things and prove them and to see whether they are so. But the people who want to argue about this point and that point and the other point, uh, it's uh, totally useless to, to deal with people like that and it's of no avail. And it's not, on the other hand, even love to spend time on people like that because that's going to go against them and it's going to harden their heart even more so than otherwise it would have been. And that's basically what 
when we're going through the series, this is what we take into account also, that it's for the people that are willing to understand the Word of God, are willing to change, are willing to be corrected, are willing to comprehend that, yes, we may have been uh, deceived or we may have believed something very strongly and had convictions about it in this matter of the identity of the church, but if this is what the Word of God says, and from the beginning until the end, we have no reason to object to it. So I'm not going to waste my time on people who want to argue and debate about this point and that point. What about this and what about that? Read the whole story. If it doesn't uh, mean anything to you, well, forget about it. And if you think it's bad, that the whole thing is crazy, well, don't worry about it. You know, just go do something else more productive. Anyway, let's continue chapter 13 and uh, verses 5 and 6 where we read about the warning of Christ to his disciples and Jesus answering them began to say because they were talking about the signs of the time of the temple and it's the same thing as uh, you read in Matthew 24 and so he tells them uh, again take heed that no one deceives you and he's obviously in specific not really talking to his own disciples because they could not be deceived uh, in the same way that others would be who did not have the background, did not speak to Christ, did not see his miracles. And he's talking in general to all of his disciples down through the ages, you know, from his time to this very day. So says, take heed that no one deceive you. For many will come in my name saying, I am he. In other words, I am the Christ. People are going to be intellectually convicted and in some areas, you might even say, converted in certain areas, in other words, converted, that is, their mind is changed from disbelieving to believing. And people like that may be very sincere, and many of them are very sincere and very honest people, very good people. And yet, since God did not reveal himself to them and did not open their minds and their eyes, they go based on what they understand, what they believe, what they've been taught, and with that sincerity, oftentimes, there are some of them who are not sincere, but the majority are, they are going to uh, preach a mixture of truth and error. And so, have we done likewise? All of us are guilty of it to one degree or the other. We come to a point that we think we fully comprehend and understand now, we develop convictions, we believe in it very strongly, and then we teach it to others, or speak about it to others, or preach it to others if we happen to be in the ministry, or teachers, and then down the road we discover, no, we've been totally wrong. So we've deceived others, and we have to acknowledge that and repent of that and uh, bring it before God and ask Him to forgive us. Well, you know, just like Paul said, well, I, I've done it in, in ignorance. I mean, to the point of murdering people. Imagine how far people can go. And yet be very sincere, like Paul, who was so, previously he was an extremely sincere person. As he said about himself. He was a very zealous person. And as touching the righteousness which was in the law, he was blameless. And so you're going to encounter people like that, and therefore you should not hate them. Because what they do is not out of malice necessarily, or wickedness. They may be extremely sincere people, just extremely deceived. And so have we. And so we are and still in some points, and I'm sure that I'm deceived in some points too, here and there. We come, it's a process, we come to the unity of the faith gradually. We don't have it all in the beginning. But at least, you know, we teach from what we understand at the point. And if we are uh, proven to be wrong down the road, we should never be too proud and too arrogant to admit 
that we have made mistakes. And that's the reason why we have to study the Word of God daily so that we may be approved, not disapproved when the time comes and be told you were all wrong. It was all in vain. And that's a process of growth and repentance. And you quickly find out, you know, who is of God and who is not, uh, at least in, in every given point that you deal with it, when you see the reaction of the person, is he going to hate what you are saying or is he going, going to sell a debris and, okay, well, maybe I was wrong. I'm going to prove it to see whether those things are so and, and repent of it. And you don't need to worry about public image and whatever uh, public announcements or statements you made in the past. It's not what counts. What counts is the repentance before God. That's the only credit that is going to be on our record in our favor. And so this is what he tells them. Just like uh, what he said in uh, Matthew 24, and so we'll find it also in Luke. And he's speaking about uh, his coming kingdom and what's going to happen before that. And he's speaking about the kingdom that he's going to bring to Israel when you read in Zechariah and many other places. When the king of kings, when the Messiah, when the ruler of Israel descends on this earth on the Mount of Olives, comes back to his people, redeems them, brings them salvation, atones for their sins, and... At the same time also, it's very important to realize that he's not going to take it very lightly with those who are deceiving his people. As you can read, and uh, maybe we should go to that because that's a very, a very important point for us to remember if we insist on remaining uh, rebellious against the word of God when it is proven to us that it, we are wrong and we continue to do something, especially for those of us who are in the ministry, or we're teaching and continue to teach lies. Uh, God is not going to take it very lightly when the time comes. And so he says that uh, we read in, uh, in Ezekiel, where God is speaking about the time when he's going to bring back his people. And uh, as we can read in, uh, well, it's a whole chapter, you can read it in chapter 20. But in, in verse 33, speaking about his people, and uh, before that he's speaking about the fact that he's uh, going to take them uh, through captivity and then bring them out of captivity. And then uh, in verse 33 he says, As I live, says the eternal God, speaking about Jesus Christ, the eternal Elohim, is the one speaking here, is the one who is coming back. It is his feet that will be on the Mount of Olives. And so he says, as I live, says the eternal Elohim, you know, the Lord God, eternal Elohim, or Yehovah Elohim, surely with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with fury poured out, I will rule over you. Speaking about those who should know better, and yet rebel against him, and against his law, and against his Torah, and have contempt for it, and yet they have the audacity of claiming to love Jesus Christ. And to love the Lord, you know, to love God. And he says, I, uh, I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with fury poured out. God is going to show his great displeasure with his people. Many of them call themselves Christians and living in Christian nations. And some of them get into violence in the name of uh, the pure white men, Christian white men, and the persecute others, bomb others, destroy, maim others. 
and that the audacity of calling themselves Christians, well, of course, they're only a small minority, but the majority of the people whose money, on his money, they write, in God we trust, and they call themselves Christians, or they believe in God, or they're a Christian nation, and yet they are extension the nostrils of God, because they're rebellious and hateful against his law, against his Torah, against his teachings, statutes, judgments, precepts, ordinances, testimonies, and worse than that, there are those people that have been called by God to with righteousness and truth, and have received the Holy Spirit, and still brought with them that contempt for the Torah of God, and say, it's not for us, it's old stuff, and many who have known better are going back to it. Well, that's the reason why God is going to pour his fury upon his people. Verse 35, and he says, and I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples. And when he studied the whole uh, story here, you see that he's going to bring them through the Euphrates, and uh, then uh, through the Saudi Arabian uh, uh, territory there, you know, northern Saudi Arabia, where it's desert, and Jordan, uh, on the way to the land of Israel. And he says, I will bring you through the wilderness of the peoples. This time is different than the one where they came out of uh, Egypt and they came through Sinai, even though some people of Israel are going to be brought back from Egypt because they're going to be there in captivity. But the main body will be coming through the east, through the Euphrates, and uh, God is going to dry again, like he did with the Nile, uh, the river, so they can go through. So he's going to bring them after that through the wilderness of the peoples. And there I will plead my case with you face to face. And that's speaking after he brings the, he comes back to this earth. And then he calls for the nations to bring his people. And his people come through that territory. And God says, I'm going to speak to you face to face. I'm going to plead with you. Just as I pleaded my case with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. So I will plead my case with you, says the eternal God. It, you know, the Obai Elohim. This is Jesus Christ. And also I have a difficulty understanding whether God, uh, you know, became flesh. And Jesus Christ was God, or was the Son of God? What, what was he? God made it all plain, and those who believe Moses and the prophets have no problem with that, but it's for the blind, leave them alone. They want to be blind and argue all they want about it. Verse 37, And I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. And the covenant that you read about in Jeremiah 31, 31, the new covenant with the Holy Spirit and the same law, the same Torah. And he's going to make it with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. But he's going to make it in the wilderness after he pleads his case with them face to face. This is what he's speaking about here. And some people don't realize what's going to happen. And that's his wife he's talking about. His nation, his people, his church. Verse 38. And I will purge the rebels from among you. And those who transgress against me. How do you transgress? But by breaking the Torah. The laws of God, the statutes, the judgments, the precepts, you know, the major and the minor commandments. That's how. And so you have a scenario here which is a very dramatic one. After the tribulation, after the day of the Lord, after going through hell, so to speak, on earth, the children of Israel were released from captivity, from bondage, from concentration camps. They think, aha, we finally made it. And they rejoice. And God says, I'm going to bring you into the wilderness of the people, and they're going to, I'm going to plead with you. 
I'm not going to let you get away with it for all that you have done, even though I delivered you through all this tribulation. And then even then, at that point, when they come to the point where they see the land thing, oh, we've made it. He says, no, no, you haven't made it yet. I've got one more thing to talk to you about. And that's what he's going to say here, you know, by pleading with them face to face. And then he's going to say to some of them, you, you make it in and you don't. And so that's what he's saying in verse uh, 38. And I will purge the rebels from among you, those who hate the law of God, and those who transgress against me. And I will bring them out of the country where they dwell. You see? Yes, I'm going to deliver you out of the tribulation. But they shall not enter the land of Israel. For all of you who like to call it Palestine. You might be among those rebels, because there is something wrong with your mind if you call it Palestine when you know better. You claim to know the scriptures. And I will be, you know, he said, that's what he said, you know, and you shall not enter into the land of Israel. Especially speaking specific about those who claim to love God and know God and worship God and love grace and, and all that and have hatred and contempt against the Torah of God. They don't even like to hear the word. As if men invented that word. God did. Not men. That's what he called his, his book, his writings, the Torah. And Jesus Christ referred to it. Doesn't it say in your Torah, I said your gods? And he's not talking only but, obviously, the book of Moses. The entirety of the book is called the Torah. And he's referring to Psalms 82 and verse 6. And yet he calls it Torah even though the divisions were the Torah for the five books, which he himself uh, quoted, as it is written about me, he said, from the Torah and the prophets and the writings. And the entirety of the book is called the Torah. That's all it means, body of teachings, you know, instructions. And so that's what God is going to do with them, he said. I'm going to deliver you out of captivity, out of tribulation, out of, you know, hell on earth, horrible things that you're going to go through, and I will bring you to the border and there I'm going to plead with you and I'm going to tell you no, no, no you're not going to make it in your heart is too full of hatred against me and you're my law you're not going to make it in at this time at least not at this time and he's not speak, speaking specific here necessarily uh, well, we'll leave another judgment to him I don't want to speak in his name when he, when he didn't say that what he's going to do with those people but he's not going to let them into the land all we know is that when we come come to a parable in the future when he came in person and spoke to his own people and pleaded with them face to face, he gave them the example that when the time comes in the future, you know, 2,000 years down the road, though they didn't know that, when I come back, you know, with my glory and the whole, the, the, the host of the holy angels with me, I'm going to sit on the throne of judgment and I'm going to gather you from all the nations of the earth and I'm going to bring the sheep and the goats. And the sheep are going to be on one side and the goats on the other. And for the goats... You go somewhere else, he says. And so, whether it is related to this one, whatever it may be, we must be warned before it happens, so we cannot say at that time, whoops, we didn't know that. And so, God says, I'm going to bring you from all the nations, but they shall not enter into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Eternal. I am Jehovah. Because there are people today who are becoming so arrogant, so proud, so boastful, 
so considered in their own deceit, thinking that they know wisdom and understanding. And among other things, they'll say that Jesus Christ is not the eternal, he is not God, he's just a man. And some would even, because of their haughtiness, you know, always say, well, that smart young Anne or young man, smart Alec, came and claimed to be God. Some have no fear whatsoever. And so God says, I'm going to let you go through the tribulation, deliver you, and going to make a point there before all the rest of Israel. I'm going to show you who is God, who is the Lord, who is Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah, who, are, who am I? He's, he's taking it personally against those people. And so we should take it very seriously. And it's very important for us to see it from God's point of view and not to be confused like many others. Anyway, in verse 24, let's continue. Where God says, this is Jesus Christ, the eternal, the Lord, Adon, that's what Adon means, God also, that's another name for God. Verse 24, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, the stars of heaven will fall and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man. Now that he's going to be son of man at that time, when he's speaking, he was a son of man. After that, as Paul said, though we have known him according to the flesh, now we know him no more according to the flesh. Now he's back to where he was before, the eternal. That's what he was before. That's what he said to his father in, in his last prayer in John 17. He says, basically, restore to me the glory that I had with you from the beginning. Well, he too was a spirit being and by whom all things were created, the whole universe. And he is the eternal also. That's his name. He's the one that spoke to Moses and that's what he said. That's my name. My name is the eternal. Jehovah. Anyway, we're going to stop at this point now. This is Mordecai Joseph saying greetings to all of God's people. The preceding message was taken from the worldwide website at address www.biblestudy.org. This site is sponsored by Barnabas Ministries. Bible study. You have questions? The Bible has answers.